How we doing, folks? Welcome to Fitter Food Radio once again. Guys, I hope you're all very, very well and you're more than up to date with the, the podcast so far. Um, if you're not, go back to episode one and have a good listen because there's tons of amazing content here. But as always, we've got a phenomenal guest on the show. Um, you all may be familiar with this guy um, because he, he's out there. You know, he's got a cracking website. He's got some amazing information. He's got a podcast of his own. And uh, we've got another doctor on the show. Um, you might have heard Dr. Tommy Wood on here. Um, we've actually got another doctor and his name is Dr. Michael Ruscio. Uh, Michael, or should I say doctor, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. And, and Michael's fine. Cool. <laughs> I, was, I, was quite, I, was, I was hoping I could call you doc. <laughs> hey, you can call, yeah, you can call me doc. I mean, it works, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so guys, um, for, for, sorry, so Michael, for those who don't probably know who you are, um, who are you and uh, you know, what is your speciality? Well, I, I practice functional medicine right now part part time I'm in part time functional medicine practice and uh, the other uh, part of of my uh, day to day I guess you could say is uh, clinical research um, and I'm also writing a book so I'm I'm kind of divided between performing clinical practice and the other uh, the other half of the time performing clinical research and also writing um, and and a large amount of my focus has to do with uh, digestive conditions. That's what we're performing right now, two clinical trials on different digestive disorders, uh, as well as the book that I'm writing is on the, uh, the, the microbiota in the gut. Um, and then that's a lot of what my patients present with. So that's, uh, and of course, the, uh, the website where we're always putting out information, um, podcast, articles, videos. So with all that, uh, I stay pretty, pretty darn busy. Sounds okay. like it. Sounds like it. I mean, do you actually have any time for patients or? <laughs> I, I do. I just I, I I work quite a bit. I uh, I will probably be working a little bit less in the next year or so. But um, like anything else, when um, when we first launched in the clinical research and also into the writing and the podcasting, um, just I, I've been working to build up a, a team around me to enable us to do more without it requiring copious amounts of my own time. So you know I'm, I, I work really hard to have good, uh, a, good, a good team and good systems. And that's why I think we're able to still see patients in the clinic and also do a good job with our research and also put out information through the podcast. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the great team that has kind of uh, materialized around me to, to help with, uh, with doing all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly helps to have the right people around you. We, we kind of made the move uh, a couple of years ago where we started to actually employ people and it was the best thing we ever did, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You kind of, before that, you kind of think you think you can do everything yourself and it's just impossible. Um, yeah. But Michael, um, obviously on your website, you know, you can see there's tons of information about like the gut, thyroid, et cetera, et cetera, which we'll, we'll certainly touch more on uh, in a moment. But would you mind kind of giving us a, a bit of an idea of, you know, what made you become a doctor in the first place? And, and more specifically, uh, like what made you get more into like functional medicine? Well, I, um, I just, I, I finally decided I, I wanted to go into medicine about a year and a half into my college career after being pre-law for a year and a half. So of course I spent a year and a half in classes that then became pretty much worthless toward my graduation, but <laughs> at, at least I figured out what I wanted to do. Uh, and initially I wanted to go into orthopedic medicine or, or at least I thought I did, but I ended up having my own health experience that really set me down a different path. And essentially suddenly started having lots of fatigue, very bad insomnia, dips in my mood. I felt cold a lot. My hair was thinning. 
And, and so I had all these symptoms that, that fairly quickly materialized. And I was, of course, quite concerned. And, and I went and I saw a few conventional doctors thinking that I'd get a diagnosis and treatment and be back to normal in no time. But unfortunately, that's not what happened until I found a functional medicine doctor shortly after diagnosed me with an intestinal parasite. And it was that parasite that was at the root cause of all my symptoms. Um, Now, it took me a little while to find that doctor and to get the right treatment. And before I did that, I did what I think a lot of people do, which is went on the internet and started self-diagnosing with hmm. adrenal fatigue, with hypothyroidism, <laughs> or hypothyroidism, excuse me, low testosterone. And I tried this person's protocol and the herb for this and, 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 all, and all these sorts of things. And some of these things helped a little bit, yes, but nothing really got me better. And I, I spent quite a bit of money doing this. And when I finally figured out what the root cause of my problem was and treated that problem, that's the only time I really saw an improvement. And it taught me a very valuable lesson. Uh, And this is something that I try to always be reinforcing with my patients and with my clinical research and with my writing, which is we, we really want to focus on the root causative factors first and not get distracted with symptoms. And, and that may sound very simple, but for example, with functional medicine, sometimes when a person presents to their doctor, that doctor may want to do a few thousand dollars worth of lab testing, wow. which may at first glance seem very thorough to the patient, but it also is very inefficient and, and not very cost effective and can make this financially stressful for people or just even cost prohibitive for people. What I try to do is really focus on the core or the vital few tests that will really uncover the root cause and give us the maximum benefit rather than the trivial many tests that might be academically interesting but don't really have a lot of clinical utility. So, um, you know, that was something I learned myself. And uh, now I really try to bring that forward into my clinical practice and my research and my writing. That's awesome. I mean, one thing I have to say is um, when we knew we were going to interview you, I spent a couple of days listening to your podcasts and reading um, through your website. And I have to say, you're, you're my new geek crush. So <laughs> you've superseded Chris Cresser. <laughs> basically, I haven't stopped talking to Matt all all day. Basically, have I about all the different things? Because some of the the information that you're giving, I, I love that you've a massive focus on the gut and thyroid because that's pretty much what the majority of my client base um, that those are the issues that we're sort of working on, um, and people tend to come to me with one of one of those two. Um, because again, we sort of advocate. Um, paleo well sort of paleo-ish nutrition so they're already usually eating really well when they come to us and it's just something else isn't quite right so we have to dig a bit deeper but I really liked that you focused on things like um, uh, working with each individual and not sort of just um, going too gung-ho with all the testing um, because you sort of mentioned actually just looking at symptoms you can establish quite a lot about that person and what might be going on in the background so one thing I want to ask about you is what do you see um, if when people sort of transition to a, a paleo style of diet what might be some common reasons that it doesn't actually work for them um, initially? Well, first of all, thank you. And, and it's, it's really nice to hear that. that <laughs> You're my geek crush. <laughs> <sense of people. laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also, this is maybe a good chance for me to mention that I will be in London for two days along with Melissa Hartwig, the author of The Whole 30, January 16th and 17th. And we're doing a whole seminar pretty much on this whole question, which is, First, start off with the diet, and here are some great dietary uh, tips and, and tricks and principles. 
as laid out by Melissa's Whole30 program. And then if the diet doesn't fix the problem, what would you do then next? And that's where I come in. Uh, and we'll have a section of this that will be geared more toward a lay audience and then a follow-up section, a follow-up day actually, that will be accessible to the, the lay public, but um, also a bit more geared toward a clinician where we'll be going through the, the clinical aspects of this and we'll also be offering continuing education credits for any type of clinician that attends. So there's, you know, th- this, well, I'll be spending probably seven or eight hours answering this question. So I just want to mention, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to mention this, that now because I'll, I'll give a short iteration, but definitely for an expansion, uh, London will be a great uh, time and a place to, uh, to, to catch that. But while, while there's no, you know, um, set rule that we follow all the time, usually a very good idea if someone has changed their diet and changed their lifestyle and they're still not feeling well, starting with a thorough gut evaluation is really a great place to start. And one of the major reasons for this, as I learned personally and now I see with my patients every day, is a problem in the gut can manifest as almost any other symptom or condition. Depression, IBS, hypothyroid, low testosterone, menopause, it can manifest as so many different symptoms that before we get overly involved in trying to diagnose the symptom or diagnose uh, or, or run lab tests to diagnose what the symptoms are, like for example, you could um, diagnose a, a female with female hormone imbalances, but it doesn't really tell you what the cause of the female hormone imbalances are. Um, so that's why I like starting with the gut, uh, treating whatever we find in the gut, and then reevaluating all the symptoms. Oftentimes, at the end of correcting an imbalance in the gut, you will see many of the initial symptoms clear. And you're, you can pretty much be done at that point in time. So you save the unnecessary testing and treatment of other symptoms because you've gotten to the cause of the symptoms initially. So step one is really, again, after diet and lifestyle, is a thorough gut evaluation. And unfortunately, that's really easier said than done. I would estimate maybe about 40% of my practice are patients that have been to other doctors and the other doctor just simply did too rudimentary of a gut evaluation. The actual problem in the gut was missed. And when they come in to see me, we are able to find it fairly quickly and uh, treat it fairly quickly and get the patient feeling better. Uh, and, And there's different testing that can be used. There's testing for the small intestine. There's testing for the large intestine. There's testing for uh, bacterial overgrowth, bacterial infections, fungal infections, parasites, inflammation. Uh, and, And there's also multiple windows. We can test through breath, through stool, through blood, through saliva, or even sometimes imaging if that's necessary. Uh, or even sometimes um, with a manual diagnosis of, of what's known as abdominal adhesions. Uh, so there's there's many different methods for assessing and testing the gut. They don't all need to be used right out of the gate, but knowing what these tests are, knowing how and when to use them can get you to the underlying cause of someone's digestive problem if, if present. And that is is oftentimes what's driving other symptoms that may not seem gut-related like fatigue, like depression, like insomnia, like female hormone imbalances, like low libido, like weight gain, like bloating. Um, so that's kind of a succinct answer to what you know requires quite a bit of expansion, but uh, that's that's putting it somewhat uh, somewhat short and simple. That's awesome. And what would you say, because um, you've done a lot of work on your podcast covering things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, 
um, obviously you've mentioned parasites. What other issues do you commonly see people um, when they come to your clinic have? Digestively, you mean? Yeah, sorry, yeah so, okay. so other things that might be going on in the gut. I would say that SIBO is the most common small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and that's why we have two clinical trials running in SIBO right now, um, because that's, that definitely is the most common. Uh, second to, and I'm sorry, do you, are your listeners familiar with SIBO? I think so. Do you know, it's funny, I, I just asked Matt this morning, because I go on about it quite a bit. I don't know how much I talk about it on a podcast. You we mentioned have to, it. Yeah, so... Um, but I think it's also one of the most common things I see um, across my client base and it's something I had and I think I've always linked it a bit to London lifestyle where people just <laughs> basically stress too much, exercise too much, pollution is rife and and then we all just live on food on the go basically in London. So I always thought it was a bit of a London thing but when I saw how much you've, you're focusing on I think maybe it is just a, a bigger issue that's quite common nowadays. Um, but you right, probably better, uh, you're I, better I, explain it than I am probably on this on the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, I I um I, I definitely have seen that same thing, and and for me, my interest in SIBO has been driven by what I've observed in my patients. In fact, a, a lot of my clinical research is just a reflection of what I see in my patients, which I I think is important to reiterate because one of the things that that I think the the field that we in the field of functional medicine could improve is making decisions based upon patient outcomes and not based upon what the new and most exciting thing is, right? Because there's certainly been a few treatments or tests that have really come into vogue. And I'm open to all these things, and I oftentimes will use them for a short period in my clinic. But I'm, I'm also very objective in evaluating if these things work or if they don't work. And uh, if, if certain things don't work, um, then we no longer continue to do them. And, and we'll probably be publishing more research in the future, trying to help patients and doctors weed out the you know, testing that's more theoretical and less relevant and, and focus on the testing that's, that's more proper or, or more needed. Yeah. And that's not just limited to gut. Um, eventually, I think we'll span out and be publishing research in a multitude of areas. But just to come back real quickly to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, this is essentially where um, the bacteria in the large intestine can overgrow into the small intestine. And even though bacteria can be healthy and symbiotic, when they overgrow, they can cause gas, bloating, constipation, or diarrhea, or an oscillation between the two. And they can also cause abdominal pain and distension, potentially reflux, And then there's this whole other world of how a problem in the gut, like we just mentioned with SIBO, can manifest extra-intestinally or outside of the intestines. And this is the tie-in and the connection to how something like SIBO can cause weight gain, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, depression, insomnia, low libido, female hormone imbalances, the symptoms of hypothyroid, and so on. So the, um, the, the issue of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth does seem to be the most common, and I say that as I routinely will test SIBO and other infections like worms and H. pylori and parasites, all of my patients. So I have a pretty good gauge where most patients get tested for both of these issues, and I would say 70% of patients have SIBO, maybe just an off-the-top-of-my-head estimate, and of those 70%, there might be 30 to 40% that have SIBO plus another infection like candida or, or blastocystis hominins or H. pylori. Um, 
And then I'd say the minority of patients have only a uh, an infection like H. pylori or blastocystis hominins and no SIBO. So um, I'm not sure if that's too much detail, but that's, that's no, well, what I'm it's, it's it's brilliant for me. Don't mind anyone else. But no, I'd, I'd say a really similar thing was two things that kept coming up on almost all the stool tests I would do would be was always SIBO was one of the most uh, prominent things, and also blastocystis hominis, which. I did so much research to try and find out whether it's friend or foe. Um, and Chris Cresser actually covered that when he came over to the UK and did a bit of a, a presentation on it. Um, but it made me realise, um, if anything, I felt a lot better about the fact that often with these things, it's, it's very all the research is in its infancy. So even just listening to you speak, it was quite good to hear how you evolve your approach the more you learn through clients and, and practice as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's it's important that we are always using research to update our opinion. And, and one of the things I, I often, oftentimes uh, caution people against is we, we should be wary of those that use research to footnote their opinion because that's just someone who's made up their mind and is using science to support what they already think. Yeah. That may not be the ideal approach. An ideal approach would be to use the science to constantly be updating what your opinion is. So your, your opinion is a reflection of the science rather than having your opinion and trying to use science to support what you already think. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I've and, become more aware of recently as well within the sort of paleo sphere, how many people are trying to almost justify their approach um, and not sort of moving with the times because you can see a lot of the information is changing and we're learning a lot more as things like American Gut Project are, are being carried out. Right. I, I think um, several years ago, having scientific references was a really important thing for the consumer to see, the healthcare consumer to see. You're, you're reading an article, you're listening to uh, an interview, uh, you'd like to see some sort of scientific reference to show that this person at least has an eye to the science. Now that we're further into the information age, if you just have a reference, that almost to me, that's the same as having no reference at all, really. Because <laughs> uh, anyone can have a reference in a couple seconds by just going on the internet. Yeah. What I think, and this is something that I, I write quite a, a, a bit uh, about in, in my book that we'll be releasing in a few months, and I really think it'll be a very interesting kind of journey for the reader to help them understand how to think through this stuff. It's, it's a simple process. It's not very complicated, but to really help people be able to evaluate quickly and easily information in the modern day. And, and essentially, um, there's just a, a few you know, a few nuances. I, I won't bore people with those details now, but essentially what it comes down to is you want to look for, for someone that has examined what all the evidence shows rather than looking at one study. And, and a quick example would be, um, let's say in London, there's a new restaurant comes into town and you're trying to figure out if you should go to this restaurant or not. Well, if you go and you ask one person on the street what they think about this restaurant, that's like having one study to support you, what you think. That person or that study could have an unusually good or bad experience with this restaurant. But if you went and you surveyed 300 people who went to the restaurant, you would have a much better, a much more accurate gauge as to what that restaurant is actually going to be like. This would be anal analogous to the approach of looking at what all the studies show and creating an opinion based upon what the aggregate findings in the, the data show. So that's that's an important aspect, and, and hopefully I'm not getting too deep, but what that translates to for the health consumer is a healthcare 
model that's going to be more efficient and less wasteful and hopefully be able to get someone feeling better more quickly and for a uh, lesser cost. And do you think we'll slowly be able to influence conventional medicine a bit more? Because I know they are starting to look at things like, um, so for example, SIBO would often be mistaken maybe by a doctor. The symptoms of SIBO would be just diagnosed as IBS. Uh, well, that, that was, that's what I've seen and I've seen my clients have a similar experience. Um, and they've actually been offered sometimes antibiotics, um, which isn't far from what you do on a sort of alternative or functional medicine basis because you use antimicrobials, but it's just a bit more, it's a natural more of a natural solution. Do you think at some time, at some point, there's going to be more convergence? Do you see the conventional medicine world sort of looking towards functional medicine at all? I do. I think to the degree to which the functional medicine approach is playing within the guidelines that I've just kind of laid out, yeah, we will be much better able to, uh, you know, cross over the barriers between conventional and functional medicine. And I think this is part of the reason why. And I've just come to learn this over the past couple, uh, few weeks, actually. But there, there's quite a few conventional doctors that are following my podcast because oh, I think they, they're, I mean, if, if I were an outsider looking into functional medicine, what I would want to be convinced is exactly what I'm doing, which is going through the evidence and having a very sound, reasonable, scientifically supported approach that's not biased and it's not heretical. Uh, and I think it's that type of approach that... Um, is really going to enable us to integrate uh, more effectively. And also, it's going to allow functional medicine to continue to grow and to expand because we need, you know, for us to continue to grow, we have to continually be holding ourselves to a higher standard. And so this would be an example of holding ourselves to a uh, higher standard. So, yes, I think think that's definitely, those lines are definitely going to continue to be blurred uh, as long as we continue to be scientific and, uh, so, you know, uh, publish studies that support what we're finding in functional medicine. And uh, I, I think we'll be doing at some point some trials that will compare something like an antibiotic to an herb in the treatment of SIBO. And studies like that are very powerful in opening up the, uh, the conventional uh, trained doctors to more natural types of treatment. Because if we take a group of 50 patients and we treat 25 with an herb and 25 with an antibiotic and we show a somewhat equivalent success rate in the treatment of SIBO um, and, and we publish it and it goes through peer review, then that's a really powerful study for a conventional doctor to look at because that's exactly the kind of evidence a conventional doctor would need to see to say, boy, I'm trained in giving these antibiotics, but I didn't know that we have scientific research documenting an equivalent effect with these herbs. You know, maybe this is something I could start incorporating into my practice. Is that going to be your study then? <laughs> Uh, it's not one of the studies that we have running now, but it's it's one of the studies I want to do uh, coming soon. Yeah. Now, uh, there there has been one study like that published. This was by Dr. Jerry Mullen, who is a gastroenterologist, I believe, at John Hopkins. And he did publish the only study of its kind thus far. And we'd like to do a follow-up study looking at that. Um, but but his study was, was really pivotal in, in helping, um, you know, get – alternative and conventional doctors on the same page. You know, the, the link there is the condition. And then the, the, the two different paradigms are treating it with herbs and treating it with drugs. And if we can show equivalent results, we kind of unify people uh, by showing that both these things can work well. And I think that's really helpful, especially for patients, because that sort of data exchange hopefully will not make a patient feel like they have to choose either conventional or natural, and they feel like they're, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place where it has to be either or, and it can't yeah. be both and. I think, like, because 
I mean, in the UK here, I mean, I think we're very much still behind the US, uh, most definitely, in fact, on the whole functional medicine side of things. Um, and in the UK, it's like, it's kind of, I, w- I was reading a, um, a blog on an Australian website, actually, and they made a very good point, And it's so, so true that in the UK, people go to the doctor for absolutely everything, whether it's back pain, knee pain, stomach pain, head pain, <laughs> whatever it is, they go to the doctor because to, to, to most of the UK public, they think that only a doctor has all the answers. They wouldn't think, oh, like I'll go to a specialist in this area for my back pain or they certainly wouldn't consider functional medicine. So I think there's definitely a slow change in people's mindset. Would you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. But then equally, I think it's amazing that more doctors like yourself, like Dr. Tommy Wood, who we've had on the show, um, are actually, you know, getting very much involved with the functional medicine side of things because there's definitely, I think, a natural element of trust with a doctor. Um, and rightly so. You're, not, you're all incredibly intelligent people that have put a hell of a lot of time uh, into your education. And I just think the more doctors that can get on board with functional medicine and, and things like that, the better. I, I agree. And it's, it's interesting that in the United States, I think, um, and I, I would assume that this trend would eventually find its way over to the UK, but I, I'm not for certain on that. The, the younger generations being so good with internet and internet research and, and checking things, um, I have found that they are much less impressed by credentials. Uh, you know, they're they're uh, they're a doctor. They went to Harvard or, or what have you. They're they're much more impressed with someone's knowledge. And, and a lot of my patients have um, maybe gone to the best gastroenterologist at the top medical center in Northern California, and then they end up in my office saying, you know, I I, I went there. I heard what they had to say. It didn't seem to really make sense to me. I've been doing some research on the internet. I think that my problem might be caused by SIBO. I came across your website. I listened to three of your podcasts. I love what you had to say. It made complete sense. And that's why I'm here. And, and so I think uh, I think the consumer you know, consumers are coming to trust doctors, at least here in the States, a bit less um, because people want a, a, a healthcare provider that's thinking a little bit more open-minded. And, uh, you know, sometimes that, that may be a conventional doctor, sometimes it might be an alternative doctor, but it's, it's interesting to see that people are, you know, less, less dependent upon credentials and more upon just evaluating a particular provider and, and their, uh, their knowledge base. So I don't know. I wonder if that will trickle its way over toward you guys. I'm sure it will. I I think it's definitely, it's started very slowly and, yeah. and i think but i think we've like you know like i mean like your event in january um you know which we highly recommend what we're going and we highly recommend others do the same as well um and i think if we can start getting more people like yourself dr tommy wood etc doing more presentations and seminars like that over this way because i think up until now we're in very much like very recent years you know all these kind of like uh seminars and presentations have always been kept in the u.s so for right. you know for us folks over here in the uk it's quite a long trip it's quite an expensive trip um and for kind of joe public if you like that's a big expense to make if it's your career you know if you are into functional medicine and naturopath whatever it may be you don't mind making the investment because it's to, to further your career whereas if it, if it's something that you just have a general interest in that you want to improve on which to be fair is i would say what is 
the majority of our listeners are just people that have a, a real passion for health and vitality and just like to back up their knowledge and, and know a little bit more about the human body, you know, it would be a huge investment for them to make. So I think it's awesome that you're 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 coming over here to and, and London's really, really sunny in January by the way. So <laughs> Well I, I grew up in uh in in New England, which in the wintertime is you know, you'll you'll get down under you know negative zero for a little while and you'll have snow wow. for several months and it'll be cold so to me that's not uh, not going to be too much of a shift so uh, <laughs> i think i'll be okay <laughs> the thing is with the uk and we were talking about this the other day is that it's not even that it gets freakishly cold it's more that you can never be prepared for uk weather like it'll be absolutely freezing really really windy and you'll wear a big coat then the next day It'll be you'll have your big coat on. It'll be incredibly mild. The sun will come out, and you're absolutely boiling. You're like, what the hell is going on? So, yeah, be, be ready for that for sure. Um, but but Michael, I, I had a quick question about the because um, forgive forgive me if you did mention this, but I I I, I, didn't, I don't remember you saying it when we mentioned about uh, people that haven't probably got the results they, that they desired following a, a paleo approach to nutrition, and you mentioned like gut testing, etc. If someone came to you who hadn't actually changed their nutrition at all, so let's say they just came straight to you and they were like, you know, I've got X, Y, and Z problem, would the first thing you'd do then still be the gut test? Or would you say, actually, go away, change X, Y, and Z with your nutrition first, and let's see what happens before we go down the testing route? Well, that's a great question. And this is definitely something that we'll expand upon. And maybe just to reiterate this for your listeners, um, something I said earlier, I don't want people to think that the seminar is going to be so detailed that it's not something that's going to be accessible to the lay public. Uh, and I think, Karis, you, you've probably observed this in listening to my podcasts. While we sometimes discuss a more advanced concept, we always break it down to very simple language and a very simple, accessible way to, to approach it. So um, I like to think that we make these things simple for everyone to understand and accessible for everyone to understand. Um, but, um, regarding what I, you know, what would I do first? It, it depends on the severity of the patient's symptoms, how good or bad their diet is. So the, the worse their diet is, the more likely I am to just have them go on a paleo type diet for 30 to 60 days and then check back in. If their diet isn't great, but it's not terrible, it's, it's kind of like a middle of the road sort of diet and their symptoms are really, really severe, then I usually will just have a dialogue with the patient and say, okay, there's two ways that we can play this. The most conservative approach would be to have you go on this diet for about 30 days and then check back in. And there's a good chance that all of your symptoms might go away from doing this. The more aggressive approach would be to order a round of testing today, and as soon as you've collected the testing, also have you start on the diet, and then we'll follow up in 30 days We'll see how you're doing from the diet, but should the diet not have produced all the results that we like, we'll have all our lab results there that we can act on immediately to help get you better. And usually what happens there is depending on the patient uh, and what the patient feels best about, determine how we'll proceed. Some people want to be very financially conservative and would elect to start with just a diet. Other people are dying to get any improvement as quickly as they can, and money is less of a concern to them. So we'll go with a more aggressive approach. Uh, and I think that, that this line of, of thinking, which is 
not making all these decisions based upon what's going on in my own head, but having this conversation and this team-based approach with the patient where we make decisions together really helps keep people feeling the best about the healthcare that they're getting. That's awesome. And I've actually had um, some clients say to me, I don't know if you have the same, uh, where they've actually said, I need to see it on paper because they know that they, they need to change their ways, be it dietary habits or lifestyle habits, but they're really struggling to sort of find the willpower. Some of that is because of things like gut issues and, and hormone issues. So they're feeling quite depressed and demotivated. Um, but they actually say to me, I need the test because I need to see it on paper and then I'll understand that I need to take action. Um, and I say, you know, actually, you don't need to have the test. I think there's things we could do nutritionally, but they insist. Um, and it really helps them with compliance. And that's sort of their demand, not mine. <laughs> for once. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's that's something where we'd had the same sort of, of dialogue. Um, and I'll give patients the, the pro con to that, where let's say it's a food allergy test. And um, really, I, I think food allergy tests, for the most part, is not clinically necessary because you can determine most allergens and intolerances via eliminating a food and bringing it back in. Also, not all food reactions can be documented with food allergy testing because there are other factors that can cause reactivity, like if they have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, they may respond to starches and uh, high FODMAP foods, which would never come up on a food allergy test. Um, so, but using that as an example, um, I'll have that dialogue with them where, you know, I'll kind of go through what I just said and say, now to do a food allergy test may cost $350. And I really don't see it impacting your your diet because if the food allergy test says that you can't eat dairy, you'll go off dairy for a little while, but eventually you're going to bring dairy back into your diet. It might be an accident. It might be a birthday party, whatever. But at some point, you're probably going to test that boundary. And if you notice no repercussion for that, you're probably going to do it again. And then you're probably going to do it again and again and again and again. And you'll probably fall into eating in such a way where you minimize the foods that you notice a symptomatic reaction to. So if you need something to you know, give, you, give you this kind of fear-based motivation, I usually find that only works in the short term. Uh, I think a better approach is to guide you through this, get you feeling really well. Once you're feeling really well, we will try to open up the dietary restrictions and help you find the broadest diet possible The foods that you notice you don't react well to, you will have experientially noticed you do not do well with those foods. And that is what is most likely to be a long-term motivator for food avoidance in the future. So that's kind of how I approach it. Uh, And usually when I have that type of narrative with a patient, it is extremely rare that someone is still insistent on a lab test. But if they are, then I'm I'm happy to humor them there. And what sort of things do you see people doing? Um, so if people have come to you, they've been doing a paleo diet, and then because of the amount of information that's available online, um, lots of people then go off and, and, and consider gut health. So they add things like probiotics, fermented foods. They might take um, digestive enzymes or maybe even stomach acid support because that message has come through quite strong now with people like SCD Lifestyle. Um, and if people still aren't feeling that great or maybe even worse um, on those foods, which we see quite commonly, um, what would you? where would you sort of point people? Obviously, you've mentioned things like gut testing, but what would you suspect at that point if they're not seeing, again, any improvement in digestive symptoms? 
Well, again, it, it would come back to doing a, a pretty thorough gut evaluation, which would include small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is kind of our small intestinal assessment, and then also a large intestinal assessment, which would look for things like candida, other types of fungus, other bacterial infections like Yersinia enterocolitis, potentially, uh, other pathogens like cryptosporidium, uh, protozoa like blasto or toxoplasmosis, uh, giardia, H. pylori. Those are excellent places to start. And what's interesting is that, if, for example, looking at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, for, as it's called for short, that can actually decrease the ability of one's bile to work effectively. So if someone's taking a bile supplement and not responding to it, that may be the underlying reason is because they have this bacteria that actually decouples or deconjugates bile and interferes with its ability to perform its function the, the appropriate way. So part of the reason one may not be responding to a, a dietary enzyme supplement is because that supplement may not act appropriately or, or effectively in the conditions of SIBO. And, um, and I feel like I'm talking a lot about SIBO, but I guess it's rightfully <laughs> so. Uh, it's been documented that in celiac patients that go on a gluten-free diet and are non-responsive or only minimally responsive, that one of the first things that should be ruled out is actually small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Because small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in some cases can cause damage to the intestines that is similar to what we see in celiac. This is called uh, crypt atrophy, or I'm sorry, villus atrophy. And so some of this stuff is not incredibly hard um, conceptually. These things have been documented in the medical literature. Uh, it's just if you're not a doctor who's trying to think progressively, like, boy, this person's uh, you know, diagnosed with celiac, they've been gluten-free, they're minimally responsive, what do we do next? If, if you're not kind of combing through the literature to try to pick these things out, they, they can elude you. Um, but if, if you do spend some time coming through the literature and you, you see fairly decent documentation that, boy, okay, if you're celiac or I would speculate maybe even non-celiac gluten sensitive and you've gone gluten free and you're still not responding, what may be happening there is this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Because remember, most of celiac affects the small intestine. Uh, and this is where, uh, of course, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth also affects. Um, so really the, the first thing to look into would be uh, gut health. Now, there, there's also a pulmonary blood panel we oftentimes do in conjunction with the gut assessment. And this looks at things like red and white blood cell counts, screens for anemia, looks at liver and kidney function, looks at blood sugar and cholesterol levels, and has a and we have a initial screening for thyroid. Because thyroid, while many cases of thyroid problems, again, can be resolved by addressing an issue in the gut, sometimes if there's an overt thyroid problem, and that thyroid problem can be causing problems in the gut. Uh, and I recently reviewed a study on this in my newsletter, and it was found that those with subclinical hypothyroidism, which is you're not normal from a thyroid perspective, but you're not severe enough to be diagnosed as hypothyroid. This is one of the concepts that we'll be discussing during the seminar. If you're a subclinical hypothyroid, kind of in between normal and hypothyroid, they showed that subclinical hypothyroid patients actually had a reduction in bile secretion. Mm -hmm. And how bile t 
ties in with everything. Bile is released by, uh, made in your liver, released by your gallbladder into your small intestine to help you absorb fat. But bile is also antibacterial. It helps to keep bacteria from overgrowing in the intestine. And so if someone has poor thyroid function, that thyroid function may impede bile secretion. That bile secretion may allow small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to occur. And so what may need to be addressed there as part of getting all this rectified is addressing the subclinical hypothyroidism. So hopefully that's not too deep of a concept, but uh, that's the other part of, of this picture that can often be important is a thyroid evaluation. Well, I was about to say the other thing that um, I'd say in the last year, I've seen more thyroid cases than ever. People have come to me because um, what's happening with their GP is they're simply having their thyroid medication um, increased every time they go back. Uh, But most of them find that their symptoms aren't changing. If anything, they're gaining weight, feeling more depressed. Um, And so I've been running private panels on them. Um, but you sort of, I then tend to sort of get into a, a bit of a dialogue with the, the doctor and it can get quite difficult because I'm trying to say it's not working and we need to explore other avenues. Um, on your podcast, what was really amazing was you mentioned links between autoimmunity. I think it was, um, is it H. pylori you were saying and thyroid disorders? And yes. also autoimmunity yes. in the gut could also be linked to Hashimoto's and all different avenues to explore between gut health and thyroid hormones that um, I've never even come across before, and they were fascinating. Oh yes, there, there's quite a bit of uh, you know, importance in terms of if if someone is, let's say, to use your previous example, on a thyroid medication, and they're still, and, and, and so they're on a thyroid medication, they're being monitored by their prescribing physician, and their blood values are somewhat normal now, but they're still exhibiting symptoms. What I found, and one of the most, uh, as one of the most common reasons for that, is there's some sort of inflammatory problem present that is not allowing the thyroid hormone that they're taking to work properly. And usually, the most common cause of that inflammation is some kind of problem in the gut. So, if someone's not responding appropriately to thyroid hormone, we come back to the gut again as a potential reason for that. Now also kind of tying into this whole picture, if someone's hypothyroidism is being driven by thyroid autoimmunity, which in most westernized country, thyroid autoimmunity is what causes hypothyroidism. This is known as Hashimoto's, where your immune system starts attacking your thyroid gland and damaging the thyroid gland to a point where the gland has diminished ability to produce hormone. That thyroid autoimmunity has been shown in some preliminary research to dampen or or improve quite a bit after treating H. pylori infections in the gut. And and that's another really important piece of this thyroid-gut interplay is the ability of gut infections to potentially drive thyroid autoimmunity. And do you think, this is a question I get asked a lot, do you think people with Hashimoto's can actually come off um, thyroid hormones and actually treat it naturally through basically through nutrition and lifestyle and managing stress, which I think is a massive factor with (laughs) all the clients that come to me with Hashimoto's have had incredibly stressful lifestyles for long periods of time. But do you think it's possible to to come off the medication? Yes, it it is. But, you know, there's an important qualifier there, which is it depends how severe and progressed someone's Hashimoto's is. The more progressed someone's Hashimoto's is, the more likely they may need some ongoing thyroid hormone for the rest of their life. However, 
It doesn't have to be that big of a deal. If we fix everything else, that person will probably feel pretty darn good on their medication and not really have any quarrels about having to be on it because they're saying to themselves, boy, I feel great. Okay, I have to take one pill a day. Not a huge deal. Uh, alternatively, if it's a mild case of hypothyroidism, uh, there's, there's a good likelihood that they won't need the medication because they still have the ability to produce adequate hormone. It's just we have to get that hormone working properly in the body, which is usually dependent upon getting rid of that inflammatory issue, which oftentimes comes from the gut. And do you um, work alongside um, sort of with your clients? Are you working with that if they have uh, doctors as well? Are you, or, or do people tend to come to you and just invest in you completely? I'm just thinking a lot of listeners might be thinking I'm going to get in touch with them <laughs> because because they'll be on the medication and be having their medication increased and increased. That's what I'm seeing constantly over here in the UK, um, which is just going to have some sort of long-term implications because they're not treating the cause, which we've just mentioned. Um, so right. would you work with a doctor or do you tend to just take them on as a client and just work with them on a one-to-one basis? We, uh, we do a combination of, of the two. I don't, um, to tell you the truth, I don't know what the prescribing restrictions look like for international patients. We do see a fair number of international patients via phone and Skype, but most of them are trying to get off medications. So mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, adding medications or increasing medications hasn't uh, been an issue that's come up a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to work with someone's prescribing, and sometimes what I will do um, because sometimes it's easier to have them see their local doctor for a prescription, is just send my recommendation along through the patient along with supporting references. And you know, usually that approach works pretty well, again, because I'm giving the other doctor the evidence that I'd want in order to make a different decision. So um, either approach can work, and um, usually, again, when we come at this from a cause-based perspective, it's not an issue of needing more medications. It's usually an issue of needing, of needing less medications. And uh, when we, let's say, repeat lab work and we see an improvement in the markers, it's usually a pretty clear decision to send them back to their prescribing, look at the lab work, and that lab work reinforces a decreased need for medication and thus reflecting that in the prescription. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Michael, I, I've got a question. Um, it's about a word you mentioned, I think about 10 minutes ago now, um, which was the word fungus. <laughs> and, uh, and I suppose you could, this is quite a, well, it's, 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 this is personal question from me, but I'm sure there's tons of people, because again, we get a lot of questions about this uh, that would benefit. But um, I've uh, got uh, fungal nail infections, um, which I've had, since I was uh, like in my early teens, um, I just put it down to the fact that I played a lot of sports. You know, I was always wearing like sweaty trainers, sweaty like rugby boots, football boots, whatever it may be. Eating a lot of sugar. Well, well this is the thing. So <laughs> at the time, you know, you just think it's, you, you don't think it's related to nutrition in any way. Um, but as a, as a teen and into my early 20s, actually, um, my, my diet was never fantastic should i say uh, lots of processed sugars um, as keris mentioned lots of breads pasta etc um, and over the years what started off as like one a nail infection on one nail um, it's actually spread to to some of the other nails as well now and uh just kind of like general kind of like a, a research that keris has found and what i've looked into now actually suggests that it may not just be as simple as uh 
an infection in the in the now due to sweaty shoes or whatever it may be, and they actually could be a hell of a lot linked to the gut. What would what would your kind of thoughts be on that? Well, I think you're you're definitely on something with with your comment and uh, Karis, I'm sure you've probably heard this in your training, the old naturopathic saying that fungus grows from the center of the body outward. So it grows from the gut out. Uh, And I think we're seeing more in the published medical literature that reinforces that, where we see more so with probiotics, but we see the ability of taking oral probiotics to help treat things that are not in the gut, like depression, like respiratory infections, like uh, skin allergies. Um, and I don't recall if there has been a trial yet looking at um, taking probiotics and their effect on toenail fungus. But I, I have had a small number of patients that have reported that their toenail fungus has gotten better um, after we've improved the health of their gut. And I think this is because uh, when, when someone has imbalances in the gut, they're more prone and susceptible to having infections and imbalances elsewhere in the body. Uh, This is why, for example, when uh, children are taking uh, probiotics during cold and flu season, they tend to have uh, reduced respiratory illnesses uh, because it seems to have an immune system enhancing effect uh, that may be fairly systemic. So um, it's, it's not something that I see day in and day out with toenail fungus and, and tracking it. But certainly, um, I, I do think there's something to be said for looking at where most of the bacteria and fungus live in the body, which would be your digestive tract, and addressing that first as a way to help uh, rid the body of imbalances elsewhere. So uh, I think there's some, some stuff that we don't know there, but certainly I think it would be a prudent approach to start with the gut see what happens with the with the nail fungus as, as a uh, as a kind of secondary to that we actually read some great articles on um the microbiome of the skin because uh, matt also gets occasional fungal infections on his skin very random places on his back and i said maybe you just need to start bathing in probiotics as well as drinking <laughs> them eating them <laughs> just submerge yourself in probiotics yeah it's, it's interesting that um there there was recently a study published showing that in children that grow up with a very diverse array of natural plant life around their home, they have a higher diversity of bacteria on the skin, and that protected against things like uh, skin allergy, eczema, psoriasis, and other skin disorders. And that children that had less plant life around their home had less diverse bacteria and were more prone to have these these skin uh, problems and allergies. So um, I'm not sure if you're able to get a little more time in nature, uh, but that may be a a decent way of of getting some probiotics on the skin. That's amazing because I grew up in the countryside and was always playing in dirt and had dogs and and Matt's uh, from London grew up in the city. So, and I never have any issues with skin problems or anything like that, do I? So that's quite amazing. No, that's yeah. a good point, actually. And that, that's actually been well well reported in the scientific literature. And there, there's a really nice section of the book that goes through early life factors and their impact on your microbiota and your immune system. And we detail how things like growing up on farms seems to be protective because of this increased bacterial exposure uh, and all the healthy microbiota and immune benefit that those confer. 
Amazing. That's actually a really good point because uh, it's reminded me of a question I did want to ask you actually. Because whilst we're talking about the, like the gut, SIBO, um, uh, it's is it worth kind of saying that you know like like stress? You know, looking at stress being like a factor, like we've got health because what we've kind of noticed with a lot of individuals, um, you know, like they find that they're quite chronically stressed, albeit work, family life, whatever it may be. But then they go on holiday, for example, and all of a sudden, all this bloating and digestive discomfort that they had, like somewhat disappears or at the very least reduces massively. Because it's like we've almost removed them from that stressful environment, and and now all of a sudden they're able to, to kind of just cope better. Um, I, I'm I'm sure that you would obviously factor that in, like in your practice when kind of like to, you know talking to your patients. Like how much of a of your approach is more towards like the actual lifestyle side of things, such as sleep, stress management, etc. Well, those are certainly fundamentally important issues in health and. As part of our initial intake paperwork, we do ask people how stressed they are, and we ask them what the major sources of stress in their life are. Um, we ask them about their uh, perceived social balance, if you will. Do you have time for friends, hobbies, um, other uh, other such activities? And we also ask them about sleep, and uh, we address those if, if things seem to be out of balance. Um, we give them recommendations. Of course, there's I can't force someone to sleep and I can't force someone to, uh, you know, spend more time with friends or what have you, but we definitely give them coaching and uh, emphasize the importance of those. And those have been documented. Uh, We're early in some of our research here, but um, we do have pretty, pretty good evidence showing that just like you said, conditions like uh, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS and inflammatory bowel disease, also colitis and Crohn's tend to get worse with stress. And uh, there's a few mechanisms and microbiota tie-ins that we're learning. Uh, one, we looked at a group, and not we, but uh, a group of researchers looked at um, college students when they were under exam stress, and they saw healthy strains of intestinal bacteria like lactobacillus. They saw those populations dwindle under wow. uh, periods of exam stress. Now, not only that, but um, when we expose humans to the stress of jet lag, which, which is stressful from a circadian rhythm or a sleep rhythm perspective, uh, that actually produces imbalances in intestinal bacteria. Those imbalances seem to have some negative metabolic consequences. What this, this particular study did was then take those bacteria and transplant them into a group of mice, and the mice actually started to experience the same negative metabolic changes that the jet-lagged humans uh, had. So it seems that uh, stress negatively affects our intestinal bacteria, and that has a negative effect on digestive symptoms and also on metabolism. And there is even another uh, study showing that one of the primary sleep hormones, melatonin, may be effective uh, I believe in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease because it seems to have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant characteristics. Um, so all these things are, are very important for gut health. And this is why before we go into very extensive testing that we want someone to at least be doing a decent job with their diet and their mm-hmm. lifestyle because, again, many of these things may correct themselves after we address diet and lifestyle. I was going to say, I've now got a list of questions for people that have to travel a lot um, <laughs> and do, you know, sort of have 
ex, you know, very stressful lifestyles or exposure to, you know, an environment that's not very supportive of gut health. But I actually think we're nearly at an hour, so we should leave it there and just say to people that they need to come and hear you speak in London. Because honestly, I could ask you another million questions if we could be on here for about three more hours. <laughs> <laughs> but people might lose well, concentration a little bit. I'm, I'm sure... Um... Michael, I'd, I'd love to come back on the show. <laughs> well, I would, I would, and, and hopefully, um, a good time for that will be when my book releases. I, I don't know when. I'm hoping maybe sometime for uh, maybe late spring, early summer of 2016. So just just a handful of months away. Um, but I'd love to come back on then and uh, maybe just kind of expand on some of the concepts in the book. Oh, that'd, that'd be awesome. That'd be absolutely fantastic. Because one thing I do have to say as well, as a, a, as someone, a clinician practising, a lot of the things I had been taught and was sort of working towards when I read through your blogs, um, you know, you're sort of saying, actually, the research isn't supporting that and your your clinical experience doesn't support that and we should be a bit more intuitive um, when treating clients. So I'd recommend any practitioners to go through your website and listen to your podcast, but ultimately turn up in January and, and listen to you speak and then buy your book. <laughs> well thank you I, I appreciate that um so speaking of which um where can people find out a bit more information and you know actually book on to the event in january is that all on your website or the the event uh is through refined health so if people just search refined health like re find health and then my name michael ruscio which is r-u-s-c-i-o they should see the event page pop up, and um, at the top of, of my event page, there's also a link to the other day where Melissa Hartwig and I are speaking together. So if you find one page, you'll, you'll find them both. Uh, alternatively, they could also search Refined Health and Melissa Hartwig to, to arrive at the links. And I, I will send you those links, uh, so if there's like a transcript or anything like that, that we, we, we can include those there also. Um, and then in terms of stuff that I'm doing, the clinical research, the podcast, the articles, the videos, um, all of that is housed through my website, which is drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And maybe the easiest way to stay abreast of all the information there would be to sign up for the newsletter, uh, which you can do right on the homepage, because every time we release a new piece of content, we put out a notification through our newsletter that uh, that the information is there. So um, that's that's the long short of it. And uh, hopefully, we'll we'll see some of the people listening in London or or making comments um, on the website. Awesome, awesome. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I do have to say because there's a lot of information out there, and you know, we come across some incredible, incredibly in, uh, intelligent individuals. But we've always kind of said it's not necessarily how much somebody knows, but how they get that information across. I very rarely take a, as much of a not that I don't take as much of an interest in these kind of things as Keris, but even just through looking at your website earlier, even I actually spent a good chunk of time on there, which actually does say a lot. Um, <laughs> because I get distracted really easily. It's his yeast um, overgrowth. <laughs> that's your answer for everything. Um so yeah, guys, I highly recommend check out his website absolutely, and uh, invest in yourself and your health and your knowledge, and get along to that seminar um, over the course of those two days. Keris and I will be there, so worst case scenario, um, can have a good old catch up with us as well. Um, <laughs> but Michael, thank you so much for, for yeah, coming on the you. show, buddy. Um, it's, it's been it's been awesome. We've we've overran as per usual, but hey ho, and uh, yeah, if we 
done speak to you before, which I doubt we will. Uh, we'll, we'll see you in January. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, guys, and thank you again for having me on. Thank awesome. You. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, and as always, please, please leave a review. Share the podcast with any friends and family that you feel will benefit. And uh, yeah, we will see you over in episode number 65. We'll speak to you soon.